Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is the uh, first week of December 2020, which means that we are about eight and a half months into this uh, pandemic season of wilderness. And the wilderness is that metaphorical image we've been considering um, of being thrust out from and disconnected from what we used to know as normal um, and not being to a new normal yet this in-between season of wandering together um, towards something that isn't yet realized. It's a season where we're not monopolized by going through the motions of what used to be normal, and we're not going through the motions of a new normal yet. And so we have this unique chance to reflect critically on our life together and to imagine a future that is better. So in this uh, series of reflections, we've, we've considered the natural physical tendencies and temptations that evolved within all of us, uh, the isms that plague us as a collective people, these sicknesses that are the collective embodiment of these natural self-serving tendencies. Um, we've considered the need for a spirituality that counteracts these forces, and, and we've started to consider some different practices that can nurture that spiritual voice within us that helps us to move beyond the physical trappings um, when we listen only to what these physical um, mechanisms within us tell us about who we are and how we're to act in life with others. Um, as we consider spiritual practices, um, we are not conflating spirituality with religion. They can overlap, for, and they do for many people, but they are not one and the same. Some of us uh, connect to a larger spiritual view through the lens of institutional religion and its practices, while others don't. Uh, but all, um, regardless of affiliation with religion or not, are capable of nurturing a common spirituality. And my argument in this series is that we must. We must figure out how to, to see ourselves um, in a different way than we see ourselves when we only listen to these um, self-serving uh, mechanisms within us. Uh, I hope that these reflections help us all to implement spiritual practices, whether within the context of religious habit or not. Uh, the first we considered was the prayer exchange, the desire, uh, the exchange of the desires of the self for, for what we understand to be the desi divine desire um, of peace and well-being for all of the creation. The second spiritual practice that helps us to have that voice in us that speaks a different word about who we are and uh, than, than what these fearful physical tendencies tell us is the practice of meditation, which is the intentional effort to become aware of very little, if, if anything, uh, to clear the mind, to be fully present to the moments and to the self. Uh, in the next episode, we're going to consider mindfulness, um, which is the intentional effort to become aware of something or someone specific and to be fully present to and with it or him or her or them. But meditation and mindfulness, although often named in the same breath and conflated, are not always um, one and the same. And so we want to be clear in what we're considering. So meditation is the it's that intentional effort to stop thinking about other things and other people. To stop replaying the past or uh, being preoccupied with thoughts of the future. 
to simply rest in the moment, in the present, to rest in the, in the okayness, the goodness, the safety, the calm of the present. Now, meditation can come packaged in the context of religion, whether it's um, a practice in a monotheistic uh, religion, uh, focusing on the presence and guidance of the divine in the present moment, or it can be a practice of a non-theistic religion like Buddhism, which has many expressions of both meditation and mindfulness. But whether the meditation comes within a particular religious framework or not, the physiological results and benefits of meditation are the same. To understand why meditation is such a critical practice, we have to remember this reality of how our human physical tendencies worked. Um, how do these things actually happen physiologically? How is it that we are so compelled to fight, to think negatively about others, and to tribalize with those who look and think like us, these three self-serving tendencies that evolved within us all? How and why do these happen, and thus nurture the temptations they cause, the temptation to self-elevate, to seek power over and against others, and to ascribe to a God understanding that condones our self-serving? So in ancient Greek medical theory, which is what shaped the understanding of Jesus and his contemporaries regarding the human body, they called this physical self-protecting and self-serving reactionism against others, thumos, which uh, most often gets translated into English as wrath. It's that visceral reactivity against another. It's the word from which the thymus is named that organ that's in front of our heart, but behind our sternum. So the Greeks assumed that this organ was the culprit, since it's where those reactive emotions are subjectively felt. When we perceive an attack or a threat, whether it's real or not, our body generates a physiological response, and we feel it in the chest. Maybe you know what it's like um, to feel that thing in the chest when we're threatened or angered by a person or an event or an idea or a set of circumstances. It's like our hearts are beating under this big lump. But the thymus um, doesn't actually have anything to do with that wrathful response. What, what actually happens physiologically is that it's our amygdala that is the key player. And in response to a person, an event, an idea, a set of circumstances, the amygdala determines whether or not that stimulus of a happening or an idea is a threat or an attack. And if what is happening or what could or would happen based on an idea or a thought is not a threat or an attack, if the amygdala does not perceive it as a threat or attack, then that the data goes to the cerebral cortex, which is the, that thinking, processing part of the brain. Uh, there's no imminent threat, so we can take the time to ponder and realize what is happening without the need to react or act at all. But if what is happening or what would or could happen based on the idea is perceived as threat, threatening or an attack, then the data is sent by the amygdala to the limbic system of our brain, which is not about thinking and processing, but is about immediate reaction in response to a threat for the sake of our self-preservation. When we perceive a threat or an attack, we are flooded by the limbic system with hormones that cause 
physical and emotional alarm and prepare us to fight or to run quickly. Our hearts beat faster. Uh, we take faster and deeper breath. Our senses get heightened. Um, and so our awareness of all that is happening uh, within us is elevated. Uh, thus our increased heart and lung functioning give us this sensation of a lump in our chest. Our response is emotional and reactive rather than logical and careful after this. We're, we are driven to react and act, no time to think. So we prepare to fight with our words, our bodies, our ideas, our policies. With no counteractive force or effort, we assume that the happening or the person or the idea is indeed negative and our brain files them away under the category of enemy. We naturally look for backup for the tribe of like or like-minded to support us in this fight for which we're being prepared. And what we do and what we say in these times after this kind of reaction within us is not the product of thought, but of raw and visceral emotion and this physical drive for self-preservation that evolved within us all. The, the thinking part of our brain is literally bypassed in this process. It's not given any input into what we do or say. This is the source of those destructive and counterproductive tendencies to fight, to assume, to tribalize. These happen when we don't think, but just allow these animalistic instinctual processes to dictate our lives. Um, there are uh, stories of this kind of reactivity, this kind of thumos in the scriptures. Luke's Gospel has a story about Jesus challenging the religious teachings and norms of the day. And the response from the people was not this, you know, carefully thought out, um, you know, we've thought deeply about what you said and you're right. Let's make some changes to, to what we think and then, and then therefore to what we do and how we treat one another. That wasn't it at all. Uh, his, his ideas were, were so, felt so threatening that their amygdalas and their limbic system fired them up for a fight and they tried to run him out of town and over a cliff. There's a story in the book of Acts about a man named Demetrius um, and a group of others. He was a silversmith and, and he was with this, this group of silversmiths and other artisans. And their livelihood depended on the sale of, this, of silver statues of the god Artemis. But um, as, as the story goes, when early Christian leader Paul came in and started to teach them a very different God understanding that, that um, was based on what Jesus taught, the, the demand for Artemis merchandise declined. Um, people did think carefully about, you know, Paul's view of the world, um, Jesus' view of the world, and, and after giving a careful thought and, and, and changing the way that they were engaging the world, they, they didn't need their Artemis statues anymore. So, so Demetrius gathers the other artisans, and they were filled with thumos. They were driven by their, their limbic systems, not driven by reason or thought. So they drag two of Paul's people into the center of town and start to rile up the people of Ephesus to become a mob of thumos. But the town clerk steps into the middle of the mob, and he's using his cerebral cortex instead of his limbic system. He doesn't see this as a threat, so he has a different reaction than Demetrius and the other artisans. And he says, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. This ought to be settled in the regular assembly of the court. We are in danger of being charged 
with rioting today by the Romans, since there is no cause to justify this commotion. Now, I love this story because it's, it's a good clue for all of us that uh, about when we are listening only to what our amygdalas and limbic systems are telling us about who we are and what we ought to do. If someone tells us, like that town crier, or maybe, maybe we realize later for ourselves that there was no sufficient cause to justify the commotion that we were part of, then we were likely being overcome by thumos, reactivity. If an idea, an action, a reaction seems, in hindsight, to be far more the product of some fictional fear rather than a justifiable cause, then we have to know that Although those instincts are within us for very good reasons, they can lie to us about the severity of a threat. They can lie to us about something being a threat when it's not a threat at all. There, there were no witches in Salem. The Jews were not the danger as Hitler claimed them to be. There was no Y2K meltdown and, and there is no shortage of toilet paper. Think about some of the other commotions that have been a part of our story lately. The community of refugees from South and Central America were, were falsely portrayed as this angry mob coming to abuse and steal that we must fear rather than help. And any conversations about a proper compassionate response just evolved into reactivity. Think about the how many communities in our nation are are filled with black Americans and allies who are protesting the social injustice of racism and how they're being portrayed falsely as violent rioters and, and looters that need to be feared. And we see these tribal lines being formed. They're drawn between black and blue as if, as if that's a choice we all have to make. And, and any conversations that we might have about a meaningful change for the sake of a more just America just evolved into reactivity. No justifiable cause for the commotion, and because of that, then we can't we can't think. Any conversations we've tried to start um, over the last couple decades about our uniquely American struggle with gun violence and mass shootings, how quickly do those conversations devolve into reactivity and fear that making any change will will somehow automatically be this tyrannical stealing away of weapons and rights? Any conversations about the, the true nature of the pandemic and how to best overcome this challenge together so quickly devolve into reactivity and fear that wearing a mask is some other assault on rights and that any collective measures will spell certain doom for the economy. Or, or, or also recently, conversations about the outcome of the election, which has been certified by international, national, state, and local officials for both parties um, as being, you know, completely legitimate. Any conversation about that, um, so much conversation about that has devolved just into this reactivity and our partisan divide has grown. These fights, assumptions, this, the tribalization that's happening has been so rash. And if we're honest, it lacks, they lack sufficient cause to justify the commotion. It's just unproductive fighting. And there's no collaboration, there's no cooperation toward a better and more peaceful future for everyone involved. We're stuck. And we're stuck because we're listening to our limbic systems cry wolf and the fears that these natural tendencies stoke within us as our hearts beat 
and we get this lump in our chest even at the thought of an idea. So maybe you know what that's like to have an event, an idea, a news story, an opinion of a talking head to cause that lump in your chest, to sow fear and wrath and anger within you. And we know that that kind of antagonism, that kind of reactivity, it does not fade with a deep breath and a count to 10. It takes at least 20 minutes, if not hours, depending on which scientific study you read, for this physical reactivity system to relax from that initial stimulus and hormone rush. When we are physically primed to fight to assume, to tribalize, that stays with us for hours after just one perceived threat. And furthermore, we can imagine what happens then when we're constantly surrounding ourselves with voices that seek to sow that more of that fear within us. If we start our day by turning on a TV station full of voices that seek to reinforce and incite us as a tribe, and it, and it remains on in the background where we can hear it all day, or if we're constantly on social media seeing memes and articles and videos that seek to incite one tribe against others. Or if we sit down to read, but it's a book or a magazine that seeks to reinforce and incite us as a tribe to fight. Or if our conversations all day with our housemates or our friends, our neighbors, are all about the threats that we perceive. Threats to the ways our tribe thinks that, uh, you know, that our politics, our, our neighborhood HOA, our congregation should be ordered, then we become like Demetrius and the Smiths. Our, our amygdalas and limbic systems are constantly in charge, constantly firing. We're, we're being hit with new hormones constantly, and we, we stay perpetually in that place of heightened physical and emotional alarm, where we're not rational. We never give ourselves the opportunity for these physical reactions to calm and to fade. We never give our cerebral cortex its chance to have its turn so that we can think rationally rather than reactively. Our lives become centered in these tribes where we rile each other up into mobs of thumos. And there's a direct correlation between the advent of the 24-7 news networks and social media over the last few decades and an increase in stress levels, mental health diagnoses, and polarization in domestic and international politics. The constant exposure to voices telling us to fight, telling us to assume negatively, telling us to tribalize, that exposure is compromising our individual and our collective well-being. So here's where meditation becomes a necessity if we're gonna get unstuck and move beyond our encampment in this place of irrational, reactive thumos rash fighting without justifiable cause. We need a tool to break that cycle that keeps us locked in that place of purely physical, animalistic, reactive thumos. We, we need something to lower our temperature. We need to give our bodies the chance to shut down that limbic system and allow our, the thinking parts of our brain to speak a word of rationality and truth to us instead. We need to shut off and shut out the voices, the images, the ideas that we perceive as threatening or that so uh, fear of threat within us for long enough that our emergency warning systems can shut off and we're able to see ourselves and we're able to see others rationally. Meditation is the intentional effort to become aware of very little, if anything, to clear the mind 
to be fully present to the moment and to the self. Meditation is not about the words that one says or the posture with which one sits, but about the ability to rest in the goodness, the beauty, and the safety of the moment. To be so focused on the moment being free of threat or risk that the limbic system stops flooding us with stress hormones so that we can relax and so that we can think clearly. So some meditate following the example of a religious leader or figure. We know from the stories that Moses found such clarity about the role that he could play in the pursuit of justice for his enslaved peoples uh, as he was out in the fields with the flocks. Jesus constantly got away from the crowds and away from his friends to find the peace of a garden. And it was in times of meditation like this that he formed this rational framework for his movement that was based on compelling people to love and to forgive rather than to act on their physical fears. Muhammad was meditating in a mountain cave when he had his epiphany, and the Buddha attained enlightenment, the polar opposite of irrational physical reactivity, as he sat under the Bodhi tree by himself. Some people meditate with the help of guiding voices. There are millions of examples on YouTube, and there are apps out there like Calm that can provide this service. Some people meditate while sitting in a boat fishing or sitting on the beach listening to the waves or while on a hike through the woods. Some meditate while sitting in a comfortable chair with a cup of coffee or tea. For me, it took years of trial and error to find out what, what worked for me. And different days demand different means of meditation. I can tell, and Blair can too, when I haven't had enough meditation in a day. I'm less patient, I'm quicker to fight, I'm more likely to say something judgy or to assume negatively about somebody else. I'm more likely to retreat into the tribe of people who think like me, and, and I'm less likely to get a good night's sleep. But when I do, when I do have enough time of meditation, however that looks that day, when I have some quiet time with a cup of coffee before the girls wake up, or I have time to go for a nice long walk with the dog, um, without listening to anything on my phone that makes me angry or afraid, or I have time to do a guided meditation on YouTube, or I have, I have time to sneak away and go for a walk in the woods. I am more patient. I'm more likely to listen to both sides of an issue. I'm less likely to get caught up in tribal commotion full of negative assumptions about another person or group of people that has no justifiable cause. I'm more likely to seek the well-being rather than the demise of someone who thinks differently. I'm more likely to seek a common good rather than a tribal good or a self-good. I'm more likely to be grounded in truth than in propaganda or opinion, and I'm more likely to sleep at night. But the benefits to meditation aren't just immediate. Meditation actually helps to train us to be less reactive and fearful. According to uh, neuroscience research, meditation practices dampen activity in our amygdala and increase the pathways between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. So it makes it harder for our amygdala to send things to the, to the limbic system where we react, and it makes it easier for it to send things to the thinking part of our brain. Um, the more we meditate, the more we exercise and build up those good emotional muscles, the more we become patient, resilient, and thoughtful in response to people, stories, ideas, circumstances. This leads to sharper attention and being more observant and aware of others. 
because we're looking out rather than just always preoccupied with looking in reactively. This leads to greater levels of empathy, compassion, and generosity, and leads to lower levels of anger, negativity, and bias. Meditation not only helps us to get out of a specific flare-up of thumos that triggered our fear, when we read that article, or we heard that story, or we had that phone call, uh, it not only helps us to get out of that specific firing of our limbic system, and uh, that compelled us to join our tribe in making negative assumptions and preparing to fight a threat. It also helps longer term. It helps to make it less likely that we'll have the same visceral animalistic reaction the next time we're faced with that same idea, person, or circumstance. Slowly but surely, the more we integrate a meditative practice into our normal routines, Seeking the quiet and the well-being of the moment, turning off and tuning out the noise, allowing that lump in our chest to fade, the more we will be the kinds of people who can respond to the complexities of life with less antagonism and commotion and unproductive fighting, but instead with a more helpful and rational response. Meditation is the second critical spiritual practice that helps us to move beyond the isms that plague us as we are our slaves to our physicality. If in prayer we exchange our self-serving desires for the divine desires of love, forgiveness, justice, and peace, then meditation is one of our best tools for overcoming the physical reactiveness that's so often the roadblock in that journey. And so religious or not, how might you develop this practice of regularly resting in the quiet, the safety, the goodness, the beauty of the present, so that your reactivity is quieted and lessened, and so that your brain and your heart, your compassion and your understanding might be that which truly dictate your living? What voices do you need to stop giving access to your spirit? Who do you need to tune out or turn off because they only sow fear, so that you can see yourself and you can see the world around you more clearly and more truly. What voices, maybe like the town crier in that story, do you need to allow more into your spirit? Because they will sow truth and reason, compassion and peace. I'm happy to talk with anyone about this, so please feel free to uh, reach out. I wish you all well with your meditations, friends, whatever form it takes for you. Stay home. Stay safe. Wear a mask, please. It is getting scary and dangerous each day more so than the one before. Be well and peace to all.